Uh, We'll open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 16, Luke 16, and this is our second to last parable. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We'll have one more next week, and then we get into a series while I'm away. Harry will launch our Christmas series, Miraculous Births, with the story of Isaac. When I get back, God willing, we'll cover Samuel. And then we'll look at John the Baptist, and I want you to take a big guess who the last one is. Who do you think? (laughs) Yeah, we'll, of course, on Christmas Eve, cover Jesus. So Luke 16, and this is our parable, the rich man and Lazarus. A couple of weeks ago, I attended my annual physical And the physician assistant, of course, ran me through the typical battery of tests. They check your weight. Okay, I've got to work on that a little bit. That's going up. Check your pulse, blood pressure, blood tests. You know it. You get all the tests, too. When one of the nurses was checking my blood pressure, the blood pressure came back at 80 over 60. Now, I was like... that's not a great blood pressure. That seems a little low to me. The physician assistant comes back in. She's like, oh, it's not a big deal. You know, sometimes uh, people just, they have a lower blood pressure than others, or maybe she just simply misread it. Well, you know what? I was a little worried as she said that because I go to these annual physicals to find out that I will be living for another year. (laughs) And of course, I debated with her and talked her into measuring again, and she discovered that the blood pressure was 110 over 70, or just lied to me to make me feel better. Now, when you think about that particular appointment, is it a highlight on your calendar? I love doctors, I love nurses, I totally appreciate what you do, But I don't go to my annual physical as like a comfort appointment. I go out of necessity. And I think a lot of you agree with me on that. Does anyone here uh, get what is called white coat syndrome? You go for one of those? Yep, I see some of that. Of course, you know what that is. You get into that space. You understand the tests you're about to go through, and your blood pressure goes up. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that there are places in the Word of God that are like these appointments. There's text in scriptures that, of course, bring us comfort. We read passages like Jeremiah 29, 11, and we think, you know, this is so incredible. God knows the plans he has for me. This is one of his great promises. But there's other passages in the Bible that analyze us. They ask a question, how are you doing in relation to this area? You know, with blood pressure, right? It's a test for something that's vital to our lives. But if you're anything like me, you don't walk through the mall and then suddenly have this epiphany. You know, I better check my blood pressure right now. I wonder how I'm doing in that area. No, I have to schedule an annual physical in order to think about it. The same thing is true with these passages. We might not be aware of them. They might not be in our sphere of thinking unless, of course, we come across them in God's word. So that is the type of parable we're looking at this morning in Luke chapter 16. It's a parable that analyzes us. 
It might even cause a little bit of white coat syndrome as you hear it. But the wise take it very seriously. The wise want to discern if their faith is still vital in Christ. So let's pick up the story. We're going to be looking at two extremes. On one end, you have extreme wealth. On the other end, you have extreme poverty. And Jesus begins the parable on the right side of the tracks. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, I just want to pause for a minute and think about this man. We don't know that much about him. We don't know how he came about his wealth, whether or not he was a trust fund child or he had become a self-made individual. The only detail that Jesus gives us about his wealth is how he uses it. It was opulent living. Look at the details in there. The purple clothing, that was the type of clothing that royalty wear. The guy is sending a message, I have so much money, I don't know what to do with it, and I'm wearing these kind of clothes. It also tells us in the text that he feasts sumptuously every day. Now, a good Jew is thinking about that, that there's one day in particular that you really don't have time to put on a feast. It's the Sabbath day. You're supposed to go to synagogue and hear the word of God. Yet this guy never skips a beat. He's always feasting. And Jesus even adds a little bit of humor. When he talks about fine linen, this is Egyptian cotton that was used, namely, in underwear. So not only is this guy wearing the finest robes, but he also wears the finest whitey tidies that money can buy. Now, we pick up the next part of the story. Verses 20 and 21, we ask the question, what's wrong with enjoying wealth? And Jesus exposes in this man's situation one big problem. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, when I come across poverty like this, I begin to ask certain questions. And I think we need to ask these questions of the text. One question is, how? How did Lazarus find himself in this condition. Another question is, as you look at him being laid in front of this rich man's gate, the question is, who's responsible for him? We have this poor man. Someone's placed him in front of the rich man's gate. Is he responsible for him? Now, let's begin by processing the question, how? You see, it's a very common thought process as you come across poverty to ask how. Why is this person in this desperate situation? Did they make a series of bad decisions? Have they been simply dealt a bad ham? Or we even ask the question, are they just looking for handouts right now? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a simple answer to how when it comes to poverty. In fact, if you look at the issue of poverty in the Bible, you come to realize that it is complex and intertwined. You see, in some instances, poverty is due to oppression. Other instances, unjust systems or bad loans. Some people experience natural disasters. Now, when the Bible talks about a natural disaster, it doesn't just mean something like a hurricane, but it could also mean some kind of 
food shortage that has occurred or even a, a disability that a person experiences due to no fault of their own, but they can no longer provide for themselves. The Bible also talks about situations where people have come to poverty through a lack of skills. They just don't have the, the, the competencies to bring themselves out of this situation. And others, of course, well, it's due to moral failure. They don't spend their money well. They use it poorly. But my point as we look at this situation of poverty is how is difficult to answer, yet that's where our mind tends to go first. Now, Timothy Keller gives us an example in his book, Generous Justice, of how complex poverty can be. He says this, a person raised in a racial economic ghetto, that's one factor, is likely to have poor health due to their living circumstances, that's another factor, and also learns many habits that do not fit with material social advancement, still another factor. In fact, you've probably heard of the concept cyclical poverty. So here you have an individual that has multiple factors which lead to poverty in their world. Now let's ask the question, who's responsible? If you look at this background, you see that Lazarus is experiencing the worst form of poverty. We call it destitution. He can't arise above his condition. He couldn't do so if he wanted to. He couldn't live the American dream. No, he's sick, he's hungry, and he's covered in sores. Now, in this culture, it was very common for the people of the village who could not sustain a person like this on an ongoing basis to take them and lay them at the gate of the richest person in the village who clearly has the resources to care for the person. So that's what's happening here with Lazarus. He's outside of the gate of this rich man. They're hoping that either himself or the guests will look upon his condition and take compassion, realizing that even the scraps from this guy's table would sustain Lazarus. But notice what has happened. Abject poverty has met heartless affluence. They don't even lift a finger. Now, can you just imagine for a moment putting yourself in Lazarus's shoes? You're sitting outside of this gate. The gate is pretty close to the household. You're hearing the sounds of feasting, plates clanking, people laughing, even socially concerned conversations like, how are we going to clean up the streets around here? Have you noticed that there are too many people laying out on the streets? We should have somebody do something about that. So here's a man that's not just suffering physically, He's also suffering psychologically. In verse 21, Jesus is indicating to us that not only is he receiving that kind of treatment, but the dogs are showing him more compassion. They come and they lick his sores. Now, Jesus takes us and he transports us from this life to the afterlife. Look at verses 22 to 23 first. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus on his side. Now, in these verses, there's been a history of interpretation. 
People have studied the Bible and they've drawn conclusions about life and death and the afterlife and salvation. But I want to give you this morning a little pro tip. I don't know about you, but I love pro tips. And here's a pro tip as you study the Bible, particularly parables. Never take one of Jesus' parables further than he intended. Never take it further than he intended. Jesus is not giving us a full picture of the afterlife as he tells us this parable. He's giving us life-giving principles. So on one hand, you cannot take this parable and read so far into it to derive like a full theology on the afterlife and whether or not there's an intermediate state. Some have looked at that term Hades in the text, and they have just kind of drawn the conclusion that this must be some intermediate state that the Bible's telling us about in the afterlife. But New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg says, you know, when you look at the Gospels and you compare the term Hades with the Greek word for hell, Gehenna, they're used interchangeably. Really, what Jesus is showing us in this parable is he's saying Lazarus and this rich man have come to their final destination. One's in heaven, the other's in hell. Now, I think there's another concern that we need to avoid, and that is the teaching that God will save poor people just simply because they're poor and rich people just simply because they're rich. It's some kind of liberation theology that some would espouse. Well, let me just say, the Bible never, ever tells us that. No, the Bible always and only ever says that a person is saved through faith by Christ, only through Christ. And you get a sense of that as you look at the name Lazarus in the text. You know what the name Lazarus means? God helps. God helps. So here you have a man who is in complete destitution, yet despite his circumstances, he has believed God's word and he has trusted in him. I really appreciate this insight from Kent Hughes. He says, Lazarus does not say a word in the entire parable. On earth, he did not complain or blame God about his circumstances. And in heaven, he does not gloat or refuse to be an errand boy due to his elevation, there is a godly, regal silence. Now think deeply on this one. Meditate upon the last time you've complained. Was it anything like Lazarus's circumstances? And I think we can take a principle away from the scriptures. Your complaints reveal a lot about the state of your faith. Can you trust God with your circumstances? Can you believe that God is with you even while you're suffering? If you look at the story, the rich man is very quick to complain in the next part of the story. Here's a guy who's never spent a day in his life suffering, and now as he's met the afterlife, he's sending his complaints up to Abraham. Listen to this conversation. He calls out, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me. Now, in the scriptures, have mercy on me is the classic 
cry of the poor. It was what this rich man heard on the lips of Lazarus day in and day out as he walked through his gates. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in the flame. Now Abraham replies in verses 25 to 26, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now, isn't this an astonishing dialogue? You would think that in the state that this rich man is in, he's in hell, he's looking and he sees Lazarus sitting side by side with Jesus, that there would be some kind of moment of self-reflection, right? Like, oh, oh boy, there's Lazarus there and I never did anything to help that guy. I should probably tell him that I'm sorry. But instead, he calls out to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, have Lazarus be a good boy and bring me a cup of water. He still thinks that he's his servant. I'm telling you, the text is revealing something integral about the character of this man. You see, the Bible, like I said, the Bible never condemns wealth, but the Bible does this. It warns that wealth can have a corrupting or blinding potential over you. So this rich man has been corrupted and blinded by his resources. He still thinks of himself as the superior in the relationship. He still thinks that Lazarus should be running errands on his behalf. And it comes to reveal to us that he didn't really care about God, and he really didn't care about his neighbor, Lazarus. Now, Paul warns the rich about this attitude in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and onward. Paul said this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on who? God. They are not, they are to do good, they, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, let me just ask you a critical question this morning. How is your blood pressure? When's the last time you've taken it and relation to this subject. Think about the two characters in the story. You have Lazarus, you have this rich man. If you think of the two characters, I want to ask you this crucial question. Who do you relate to more? And I'm not talking character-wise, I'm talking wealth-wise. When it comes to your faith experience, is your faith experience about suffering silently through destitution while trusting God, or is it more, I need to not trust in my wealth. I need to believe that God has given me this wealth to be a steward of it 
for the sake of advancing the kingdom of God and blessing those who are in need. Who are you in relation to more in this story? I would submit to you, for me, it's Lazarus. You see, when you work in the bakery, you start losing the ability to smell fresh bread. When you work in the chocolate shop, day after day, smelling the same scent, you stop being able to smell chocolate, and the same can occur with wealth. When you've been exposed to wealth and poverty on a consistent basis, you stop losing the ability to smell compassion and mercy in these instances. I said that poverty is complex. It's also messy. And Jesus tells us in the Bible it's not going away. Deuteronomy 15, the same thing. The poor will always be with you. So what should the Christian response be to poverty? Oh, I was so thankful for Keller. He exposed me to a sermon from Jonathan Edwards in his book, Generous Justice. You see, Edwards was passionate about this particular topic, and in 1733, he preached a sermon entitled, The Duty of Charity to the Poor. Now, the heart of the sermon is an answer that Edwards gives to a series of objections that people would bring before him as he would preach on generosity and caring for the poor. Now, some of us look at this type of topic of meeting people's needs and we say, well, I'm afraid that if we delve into this, we might go into the social gospel. The social gospel is believing that if I do benevolent acts, humanitarian acts, that I will be good with God. But I'll tell you, Edwards can't be accused of social gospel. He was instrumental in the Great Awakening, the explosion of evangelism throughout this very area. Now listen to some of these objections he brings up. One of the objections was this, and this is in his language of his time, though they be needy, yet they are not in extremity. So let me just make it clear to you, they haven't hit rock bottom yet. They're not starving at this point. You can hear this commonly today expressed like this. They, they talk about these people being poor, but if you go into their household, you see these big screen TVs and things. They're just fine. They're all set. Now, Edwards would challenge us with the principle from Scripture, love your neighbor as what? Yourself. So, do you wait until you are in extremity before you take care of your condition? Do you wait until you're starving before you try to do something about it? You, you wouldn't for yourself. And, and if we're to take that principle seriously, Edwards would say then we need to care for the poor before they hit extremity. Listen to this second objection. The second objection is addressed when people say something along these lines, I have nothing to spare, and they have barely enough to meet their own needs. Now, he play, bases this sermon off of the parable of the Good Samaritan. We looked at that last week, and remember, we saw in that parable that love entails risk. You have to risk in order to love. You have to sacrifice in order to love. So Edwards responds to that type of ejection. He says, when you say I cannot help anyone, you usually mean 
I'm unwilling to burden myself or cut into my lifestyle in order to help them. He identifies one additional objection. Some do not help the poor because the person is of very ill temper, he is of an ungrateful spirit, and he has brought himself to his poverty by his own fault. Keller says this, we all want to help kind-hearted, upright people whose poverty came to them due to no foolishness or contribution of their own and who will respond to our aid with gratitude and joy. But get this, he says, no one like that exists. No one likes that exists. When you get into the issue of poverty, you're not going to find people like that in poverty. So then how do I respond to that? Well, I need to think about the gospel. Did Jesus come to me because I was of generous and joyful disposition, ready to just receive the salvation of God and acknowledge my sinfulness? Of course he didn't. The Bible says he came to us while we were at enmity with God. We were fighting against him. We wanted to do things our own way. And then Jesus came and he came into our situation and our circumstances and he lifted us up by dying on the cross for our sins, by shedding his precious blood. You see, you know that expression, the more things change, the more they remain the same? I think about Edward's sermon, and this is a sermon that's preached back in the 1700s. And as I think about this sermon, I say to myself, I've thought all three of those things when it comes to poverty. All three of them. So really, things have changed, but they're still the same. As you look at the story, we think, I might not be as bad as the rich man. But remember, Jesus is giving us an extreme example here so that we could see how sinful, callous indifference or convenient ignorance is. I want you to see this third point. And this is really the big idea of this parable. If you do not care for the poor, you do not believe God's word. You don't believe it. You don't love it. You don't cherish it. You don't believe that it is God-inspired. Look at the next part of the story, and we see that come out in the exchange the text says, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So here we finally see the rich man caring for someone other than himself. He wants Lazarus to go and be his errand boy and to tell his five brothers that they need to change their ways, that if they live like the rich man, then they're going to be in the same place as the rich man. Abraham's response is very clear, isn't it? They have God's word. Now you, you hear the skepticism in the rich man's voice. 
Essentially, he's justifying himself. I understand that. I understand that we have the Bible, but here's the thing. If someone would have come from the dead to me, I wouldn't be in this situation because I would have listened and heard them and I would have responded. I would have changed my ways. It's a very common objection, right? You hear people today saying similar things. The Bible's not enough. The resurrection of Jesus is not enough. But if I see some kind of sign or miracle or wonder, then I'll do what God's Word says. Then I'll believe God's Word. Then I will deny myself and I will care for those in need. But here's the thing. That just isn't true. You look at the story of Israel. They see the signs and wonders of God, the ten plagues. They are catapulted out of Egypt, the Red Sea crossing. They get to Sinai. They build the golden calf. The Pharisees are watching Jesus perform miracles like the people in the land had never seen before. They attribute those miracles to Beelzebub. And I guarantee you that if someone were to come back from the dead today and say, Jesus is the Christ, he is the way, the truth, and the life, there will be many people that would find some reason to discount it. As you look at the Bible, you have to understand this important principle that some types of knowledge are not open to historical or scientific investigation. And we here commonly trust the science, believe what the science says, but not all forms of knowledge can be discerned through the scientific message. Let me, let me, let me help you there. Can you prove that your child loves you through the scientific method? Of course you can't. There's no scientific process or study that you could repeat time and time again that would just keep coming back and proving to you that your child loves you? No, you have to look at the evidence of your relationship with the child, their disposition, and your understanding of love, and then you just draw a conclusion, don't you? You choose to believe that they love you or you choose something else. And I want to submit to you this morning that the same is true with belief in God and belief in God's Word. There is no scientific process that I could take you through that could be repeatable time and time again that's going to guarantee to you that God exists. You have to look at the evidence and make a point or a faith decision. Now, here's another point with all of this. God is not responsible for your choice in that. He's not responsible for whether or not you believe. He's not responsible if you're agnostic toward his word, meaning that, yeah, you know, you you believe it could be true, you believe it couldn't be true, but you're really not going to put yourself out enough to figure it out whether or not it's true. He's not responsible if you're cynical with his word, where you go into his word with like a, a microscope and you're trying to find a flaw and you're, you're already kind of predetermined that there are flaws in the Bible. And then once you find that one, you say, oh, no, I don't need to trust this anymore. And he's not responsible if you choose to reject his word. You see, the Bible's clear God is not going to give us signs and wonders to make us believe. He's already given us the best. And it's the revelation of the Word of God. 
And God's word when it comes to this matter of poverty and how we should respond to it is clear. Listen to it. Deuteronomy 15.11 For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Proverbs 14.31 Whoever presses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 19.17 Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 21.13, whoever closes his ears to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Proverbs 22.22-23, do not rob the poor because he is poor. Crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Proverbs 31.8-9, open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. Jesus' own words here. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brother or your relatives, a rich neighbor, lest they also invite you and return you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? James 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? How's your blood pressure this morning? How's it doing in relation to this area? If we claim to be a Christian, and this rich man claimed to be a son of Abraham, he thought he was all good with God because of his ethnicity. If we claim to be a Christian, but our material wealth is for our own pleasure, if we are not generous and compassionate with the resources that God has given us, if we're hoarding them, if we're just kind of throwing crumbs off the table to the poor, something is vitally wrong with our belief in the Word of God. Our blood pressure is all out of whack. So I want to challenge us as a church once we've kind of taken this message, you, you want me to give you some positive outcomes, like what do we do next? Well, the next step is to start praying about it. Because I'll tell you, God's moving this church in this direction. We want to have a heart for the community. It's so important to love the people around us, to care for them, to do good. Not, not just because we want to grow this church and fill up this place, but we want to do good because we come in the name of Jesus. And that's what matters. So be thinking on that. Be praying on that. Pray with me. 
Let's bow our heads and I'm going to read Psalm 113 to you. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God and who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen.